For the third day in a row, Sunday recorded no new local cases of COVID, but there were still six imported cases. The CECC also announced one COVID-related death, a man in his 60s who tested positive at the end of May and subsequently underwent treatment in isolation. Just five months after being released from the hospital, he died of post-COVID complications. Let's hear from the CECC. As we investigated the cause of death, we found that the patient developed pulmonary fibrosis after contracting COVID, which led to severe complications of respiratory failure. The patient passed away on December 1st due to respiratory failure while in the hospital. A recent U.S. study investigated blood samples of people who have received two doses of Pfizer. Results showed patients with breakthrough infections had significantly higher levels of plasma antibody than those who had not contracted COVID, and their neutralizing antibodies were up to 10 times higher. It appears these patients gain super immunity after recovery. However, CECC specialist Li Bingying said superimmunity is not an appropriate term to use. He said although neutralizing antibodies alone may be ineffective in fighting new variants, our T-cells have immunological memory that can mediate a much faster immune response upon future re-encounters with COVID. Nonetheless, he said the key to immunity is still getting vaccinated to gain baseline protection. On Saturday, voters around the nation cast their ballots in the four-in-one referendum. A low turnout prevented the referendum from passing, not to mention the no votes outnumber the yes votes. A closer examination of the results reveals that the north-south political divide is still very much in existence, with voters in the north siding with the opposition KMT and southern voters towing the line of the ruling DPP. In the end, due to a low turnout, the four propositions in Saturday's referendum never passed. However, a closer look at the breakdown of votes in each municipality reveals the general positions of the nation's voters. Referendum results show a north-south divide. In Taipei, Jilong and Taoyuan, there were more yes votes than no votes. However, it's just the opposite in the southern municipalities of Tainan, Kaohsiung and Pingdong. I'd like to thank my fellow Tainan citizens for their decisions. This is not a partisan contest nor a personal competition, but a discussion on issues. Taipei, Tainan and Kaohsiung have clearly returned to their traditional positions of being in either the blue or green camp. Basically, this reflects the KMT's political stronghold in Taipei City. At the same time, this also reflects that southern Taiwan, especially Kaohsiung and Tainan, is still DPP territory. Looking at other major cities with KMT mayors, New Taipei voted yes on three propositions but was against starting operation of the fourth nuclear power plant, whereas Taichung voted no on three propositions, but gave a yes vote on holding future referendums simultaneously with major elections. As for DPP-governed Taoyuan and Xinzhou, the all-yes results showed a departure from the ruling party's position. 
Taiwan is a free and confident country, and this round of referendums again exemplifies Taiwan's democracy. Although there may be opposing views and voices along the way, I believe the administration will take those into account in the future. Taoyuan has always been a solid part of the blue camp. Zheng Wenchan, because of his character, has brought in many votes from moderates and even from people of a light blue hue. But if we go back to partisan competition, then the KMT is still enjoying some advantage here. As for Taichung, we've always said in the past that it is a swing municipality, and Lu Xiuyan has also gained wide approval in the polls because of her personal traits. So it doesn't mean that the KMT is guaranteed to have it their way when it comes to referendums. Now that the referendums have come to a close, the next challenge confronting the ruling and opposition parties lies in the 2022 local elections. Whether there will be a redrawing of the blue and green divide is something analysts will focus on. International media took note of Taiwan's referendum on Saturday. Some say the final result was a major setback for the opposition KMT, while others call it a vote of confidence in the Tsai administration. Although the KMT labeled the 4-in-1 referendum as a vote of no confidence in the Thai administration, it turned out to be a vote of confidence in the Thai government. Voters in Taiwan have rejected a plan that would have effectively banned the import of U.S. pork. President Tsai Ing-wen was among those who voted on in Saturday's referendum. The proposition on banning U.S. pork products containing rectopamine received the most coverage from international media. According to the Wall Street Journal, the rejection of the proposition effectively removed barriers to the formation of a U.S.-Taiwan trade pact. AFP believes that the referendum was a test of Taiwan-U.S. trade relations and that the results show the Taiwanese people's wish to go out into the world and actively participate in the international community. Meanwhile, the Asahi Shimbun reported that the Thai administration hopes the results will strengthen Taiwan-U.S. relations and facilitate Taiwan's bid to join the CPTPP. Wacky desserts are on the menu this winter as vendors take advantage of a bumper strawberry crop. In December, many restaurants have unveiled drinks and desserts starring strawberries, ranging from the mundane to the extraordinary. Let's see what's cooking. Place fresh strawberries into a blender and give it a whirl. In no time at all, you've got a milkshake in pale pink. Whipped cream and strawberry jam spill from the rim of the glass. It's a treat as dreamy to look at as it is to eat. You've got to eat strawberries in strawberry season. And Taiwanese strawberries are more delicious than the average strawberry. They're more fragrant. Strawberry cakes, strawberry souffles, and strawberry milk are all good. Strawberries are great in cakes and drinks. They are also star in creative desserts like mini yogurt balls and one-bite cheesecakes. But the wackiest concoction of them all is this. 
This imposing tower is made with more than two dozen strawberries, measuring 50 centimeters tall. It's drizzled with condensed milk. Just looking at it can make her knees go weak. It's a bit scary. It looks like a feather could knock it over. The portion size is quite sufficient. It's enough for two people. To get customers' attention and to make for better pictures, we've made our products a bit extra. When we don't have strawberries, sales are pretty good. But during strawberry season, business picks up, of course. It increases by 50 to 60 percent. It goes in a tea bag followed by hot water before the aroma of strawberry hits the nose. Cold weather came early this year, so we've seen online sales rise for strawberry products. Sales quantity has more than doubled. Thanks to the chilly weather, there's a bumper crop of strawberries. Vendors are taking aim at the 1.8 billion NT strawberry market by dishing up creative desserts that tantalize the taste buds. At this year's Tokyo Summer Games, Taiwan scored two golds, four silvers and six bronzes to rank 21st in the world. It was Taiwan's best Olympic showing of all time, and it was a credit not only to its athletes, but also to its scientific innovations in sports training. Today, we meet the other Team Taiwan, the team of academics and medical experts who use sports science to support national athletes. They help athletes train physically and mentally, and they use big data to find ways to overcome opponents. How does sports science work? We show you in our Sunday special report. Du Yijing has played golf for 15 years. Today, she's not training on the green, but polishing her putting indoors. On her head, she wears a sensor connected to a neurofeedback machine. As she swings her club, the graphs on the computer flicker in real time. The data tracks the neuroactivity in the frontal lobe of her brain. Before the athletes come in for the experiments, we have to find what their best neural levels are. Then we set a target, and during training, the athletes try to bring their levels below that threshold. She has to try to make the bar fall below that threshold to get in the zone. When it drops below the threshold, the machine makes a noise that means she's in the zone. Brainwaves can offer insight into an athlete's concentration level. Through training, athletes can quickly get themselves in the right mindset for a steady performance. They learn how to deliberately control their brain activity in competitions. Each session is about 40 to 50 minutes. After eight sessions over three weeks, the golfer will be able to control her brain waves and to improve her putting. Science and technology can give athletes an edge at competitions. That is what sports science is all about. But does it really get results? Among the best examples is Taiwan Shouen at the 1998 Bangkok Asian Games. Taiwan put up an extremely good performance, one of our best ever. The main reason for that is probably that we finally put together a comprehensive sports science team to help the athletes. Retro-reflective markers are glued onto the weightlifter before he steps on to a set of floor sensors.
through the markers on his body and a network of cameras surrounding him, a computer is able to track every single one of his movements in real time. This is a 3D motion analysis system powered by infrared light. We can see how the weightlifter pushes up the barbell. If the sway movement is too big, the barbell may fall back or forward, and the athlete won't be able to steady it in place. So with this equipment, we can see the entire lifting process. We can check whether the left or right legs exert pressure evenly during the lift. We can look at the limbs and see whether the joints are at the right angles. Olympic gold medalist Guo Xingchun benefited from the technology before heading to Tokyo. She got an injury a long time ago, and she had already gone through all the rehab. Her coach used the equipment to see how much more force her right and left legs were exerting, to see whether she had recovered from the injury, whether she was better. Technology can also open a window into the habits of opponents during competitions. Taiwan's table tennis team used this kind of strategic analysis at the Tokyo Olympics. This system basically tells us about the opponent's serves. Where do they tend to land the ball? Knowing where they aim can help us gauge how to return the ball. Analyzing these landing spots and other aspects of technique, we can get a very clear picture of our opponent's habits, strategies, and techniques. This way, our athletes can practice how to counter any kind of adversary. It provides a foundation for training. The National Sports Training Center has a sports science team dedicated to helping athletes improve. Currently, it has just 62 experts, which is nowhere near enough. An even bigger issue is that it has no permanent staff. Right now at the National Sports Training Center, we have a sports science team. But generally, all the members of the team are university professors or medical staff at hospitals. They are the ones who make up the team. So after a competition, the team might get disbanded. A new one might be put together later. Doing sports science requires talent in information engineering. Hiring that talent is tough because the National Sports Training Center can't compete with the salaries offered by large tech firms. If we compare against salaries at TSMC, an engineer at National Sports Training Center makes just two-thirds of what TSMC offers to someone with the same education. Of course, this ends up having an impact on aspects of sports science, such as strategic analysis and badminton. Besides staffing woes, another problem for Taiwan sports science is the high price tag of all its equipment. There are many instruments that are extremely expensive. Every sport requires different instruments, so we need to customize everything for every sport, putting together the setup that's needed to train. A 3D motion analysis system with all of its parts can cost more than 10 million NT. What's more, as technology advances, some components become obsolete and must be replaced. Sports science is a field that demands deep pockets. Taiwan's Sports Science and Research Department at the National Sports Training Center doesn't get 100 million NT. The amount received is around 6.5 million NT.
Taiwan's leading sports science institution is the National Sports Training Center, which gets just 6.5 million a year from the Sports Administration. For any additional funding, the department depends on one-off project budgets from different government agencies. Altogether, the department has put together a budget of 500 million NT per year. The problem with this arrangement is that the cash can dry up at any given moment at the whim of the central government. I think that at this stage, Taiwan should consider establishing a sports science research center that works together with a national sports training center that would breathe life into the field. Having a center like that would make it easier to hire more competent people and offer more competitive salaries. People watched the Tokyo Olympics and it made them think that sports science is exclusive to competitive sports. But that's only a small part of what sports science is about. A bigger aspect of it is bringing sports to everybody. Experts say that sports science has broad applications. It can be used to promote sports from a public health perspective. It can drive growth in the sports industry. So this was a standard long-distance racing spike. So you can see it has this stiff plate on the bottom and just this thin wafer of foam. This isn't even a centimeter thick. This is, you know, seven or eight millimeters right there. Um, this new generation of spikes. So you can see this is the same size shoe, but thicker in the heel. And you can see right here, this plate that goes through and it continues on to the bottom. Um, but it's kind of sandwiched with a little bit underneath there. And this foam is much squishier. Sports science can drive innovation in running shoes. Earlier this year in Tokyo, U.S. athlete Rai Benjamin won silver in the 400-meter hurdles with a time of just 46.17 seconds. He's believed to owe his stunning speed to his specially designed running spikes. Sports science can inform equipment design, which can later be adapted to designs for the general public. This can help our industry, as well as prevent sports injuries among everyday people. At second glance, sports science is not all about winning in competitions. It supports talent cultivation, industrial growth, public health, and even R&D development. This eye tracker detects the exact spot that the shooter is fixated on. Not only that, it also provides hints on the athlete's state of mind. Studies have shown that shooters pull the trigger between two heartbeats. So the slower your heartbeat is, the more time you have between beat and beat to find the best opportunity to shoot. With the advancements of technology, sports are no longer only the display of human endurance and explosive power. They are also a showcase of the scientific application of strategy and knowledge. With countries around the world racing to be competitive in sports science, Taiwan's sports industry must decide how serious it wants to be and how to invest its limited resources wisely. After wreaking havoc in the Philippines, what's left of Typhoon Rai will only bring rain to Taiwan beginning Monday. The Central Weather Bureau says although the northeast monsoon has weakened, the periphery of Rai will bring precipitation in and around the island all the way till Wednesday. On Saturday, the monsoon will return 
This time, it may come in the form of a continental cold air mass, possibly sending the mercury down to as low as 10 degrees. The winter sun made an appearance Sunday, and people seized the fair weather, enjoying the outdoors and immersing in the Christmas spirit. Such nice weather today. The kids should come outside and run around and bask in the sun. Due to the northeast monsoon, it was still quite windy. Beanies, scarves and winter coats were very much on show. It was pretty cold this morning, and now it feels very hot all of a sudden. The temperature swing is pretty big. The lowest temperature Sunday morning was recorded in Damshe and New Taipei, a mere 11 degrees. Temperatures dropped back up during the day in the northern, northeastern and eastern regions, reaching 18 to 21 degrees, a bit warmer than Saturday. The CWB said starting Monday, with the peripheral winds of Typhoon Rai approaching, the entire island will likely see precipitation. From the 20th to the 22nd, there will be a lot of moisture around Taiwan. Clouds coming in from the south will carry the moisture, bringing brief showers in various places. It should be noted that the precipitation will be most evident on the 21st, with brief showers occurring everywhere, and the possibility of heavy rains cannot be ruled out. This wave of moisture is expected to gradually dissipate on the 22nd. According to the CWB, the rains will be most widespread on Tuesday and will taper off on Wednesday. Temperatures are expected to take another dive next weekend with the arrival of the strongest continental cold air mass of the season so far, lowering the mercury to as low as 10 degrees. On the 25th and 26th, which are Saturday and Sunday, we may see a wave of the northeast monsoon that may even be a continental cold air mass coming down from the north, affecting the weather around Taiwan. Currently, the strength of this wave of cold air is looking like it will reach that of a continental cold air mass. The public is reminded that the chances of rain will increase on Monday, so don't leave home without rain gear.